Well, this morning, as Mark mentioned, we're looking into the book of Ephesians. Ephesians was the the first book I preached on when uh, when I came to Affirmation, <laughs> low low these many years ago, um, and thought as we were thinking of of what next book we would enter, thought you know what it's been a, it has been a long time, so maybe it, 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 none of you will remember, and uh, many of you are not here, so why why should we say well we've already preached it? I thought it'd be great to come back to this relatively short book, but. As is the case with all of Paul's writings, they're incredibly, incredibly dense. The, the, uh, each word in Paul is, is set like a jewel. It really is, um, in its proper place and, um, and really is a doorway into a whole world of theology. Uh, it's, it's really incredible. So length for Paul makes almost no difference. Uh, Paul's short letters are um, almost infinitely deep. And Ephesians is such a letter. It's short and dense. It is a charter for the church, um, and it is, it is rich in theology. Uh, so it, it'll be a joy to go back into and to study uh, together. Now, we'll have a break uh, as we come into Lent and, and Easter, so we'll, we'll study for a little while, break away, and come back to it as we did last year with 1 Corinthians. But this morning, we'll reintroduce the book and uh, consider just the, the first couple verses. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. And, and even that, to be honest with you, when you start to look at the depths of it, um, you realize could be several sermons. Um, Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians while he is under house arrest. He loves the Ephesians. Ephesus, if you can picture it, is in Turkey, um, over on the, on the west coast of Turkey, kind of looking across the sea at Greece. Uh, Ephesus is one of the letters addressed by John, uh, in the, you know, by Jesus, but, uh, you know, in the, in the, uh, seven churches of Revelation is a church that you'll remember there. Uh, the Lord had some beautiful words to say to them, but also some hard, hard words about losing their first love. This is a church that, uh, that Paul will come back to at the end of his journeys. Uh, Paul does three missionary journeys around Turkey and uh, Macedonia and Greece. And when he's done and he gets a sense that the Lord is calling him and that it's going to get a little rough here. He's being told in every city he goes to on that last journey, somebody comes up to him and says, hey, uh, you know, I, I think uh, something bad's going to happen. Uh, and so Paul confesses this, that uh, I, I think this is the end of my, my missionary journeys to this part of the world. He wanted to get out to Rome. Uh, and so at the end of his third journey, he's heading back to Jerusalem where he, he's convinced something's going to go down. And as he does, instead of just shooting back to Rome, he makes a little detour to a little city called, little town called Miletus, and which is also in, in the west coast of Turkey, and asks that the Ephesian elders be brought to him. And, uh, and so people travel up and they get the elders from Ephesus to come down, and he has a very tearful uh, goodbye uh, with them and some strong words for them, encouraging them to be shepherds of the flock and to be prepared because wolves will uh, rise up even from their own number 
and seek to destroy the church of Christ. And Paul gives them one last charge and punch in the arm and exhortation. And, uh, and it's a very tearful uh, goodbye uh, for them. So I say that only to say that this is a church that, that Paul spent time with. Uh, it's a church that he loved. He loved uh, the elders of this church. And so we'll feel that in, in, as Paul writes this letter to them. Now, what we're jumping into at the very beginning, the, Ephesians is great for all sorts of reasons, just because the theology is so rich and good, but it's also great because if it's, it just launches out very quickly. It's like a rocket, uh, this book. There's no, there's no on-ramp in this book. It, Paul just immediately launches, in, even in his greeting and in his opening salutation, um, Paul just launches into maybe... Um, the greatest sentence ever written, this the verses verses three through fourteen is one sentence in the Greek, over two hundred word sentence. So he like breaks every law of uh, you know that that all our all our grammar teachers taught us. But um, he had permission, and and uh, just one long beautiful run on sentence uh, in the Greek that Paul hits here, and it's as if he starts praising God because that's how this will begin in verse 3, blessed be or praised be God. Um, and when he when he turns on the praise valve, it just, it just the fire hydrant opens and it gushes out um, in, in magnificent and beautiful ways. And I love this because it is so appropriate for us in our whole Christian life. If we just took the book of Ephesians as a template and a model for our life, the word of exhortation for our life, then... Uh, we would do well because it begins with praise. Uh, it doesn't just end with praise. Now that's appropriate too, right? In hearing all the good things God does and all the all the things that are true of Him, uh, that should bring us to praise. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But it should also begin with praise. It is it is praise in the beginning and praise in the middle and praise in the end. And that's what we will see if you are listening. And I encourage you to go back and read it. Uh, this long sentence, you will see, in fact, that it does that. It begins with praise in verse 3. It's got bursts of praise, verse 6, and then verse 11, and then ends with praise in verse 14. Uh, so it's just, it is praise to begin and praise to end and praise exploding out in the middle of this. And that's important for us to, uh, to remember. So as we think about this, let it, we, we need to be prepared uh, for the next couple weeks because as my friend Kevin says at Westminster, when you, when you step into a text like this, it is like breathing in the, the cold, fresh mountain air of high theology. Uh, and this is high theology. And it is good for our souls to do it, just like going up on a mountain and, and being away from all of the dense, you know, polluted air down below uh, to get up on the mountaintop and to just take it into our lungs. Well, theologically, we need that as well. You know, we, we spend too much time down in the muck and the mire, and we've got to be down there. Right? We don't live on the mountaintop. We've got to live among the, the troubles of our age and all the cultural things and all the politics and the economics and the social things. These are important things. They're important things, but they are all, every single one of them is penultimate. It's penultimate. Right? All the problems, all the troubles, all the real things of our lives that take up 99.9% .9 of our brain space is penultimate. We give it way too much. 
space and way too much influence over us. And it is very important. That, of course, is the reason, Lord willing, we are here today, because what we're doing here today is we're up on the mountain. <laughs> we are in the heavens, if you will. Right? We, are, we, have, we, are, we have attended to Mount Zion. And we are coming here that we might, again, take in that fresh, high mountain air of high theology so that we can get back into the, uh, into the, the troubled lands and, uh, and, and serve him faithfully. So I want to encourage you with that. Let our, let our eyes be oriented now uh, toward, toward the, the high heavens and the rich theology. Paul begins this letter with his, in many ways, his typical greeting, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. There's a lot to say there. We're not going to spend time here. But even just that greeting would be worth contemplating. How is he an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God? To the saints who are in Ephesus, right? Saints means holy ones. To the, to the people of God. This is a, this is a letter written for the church. This is a letter written for the people of God, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then his typical salutation, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now what I want to do is I want us to think about the first, the, the first third of this beautiful theological run-on sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. Now here we have a little punctuation issue in the English. Uh, is it does love go with that sentence? I believe it goes with the next sentence. The ne- it's all one sentence, but with the next phrase. So I'll read it that way. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So, a few observations here. First, again, begin even this little section begins and ends with praise. Blessed be, praised be, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then even on this section, as he brings it back around, what, of all, what is all of this for? It is to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So even this little section is this praise sandwich in which he's just beginning and ending with praise. Th- this text is not a, a command to do anything. We're going to get there are things that we need to do in our word of exhortation this morning in 1 Peter 2. One of the reasons I chose that for our word of exhortation is he gives us the therefore, if you will, of our election. There are things there there are there are ways of living that being the people of God calls us to to be and to do. But Paul does not begin with that. Paul doesn't say, hey, listen, uh, as, as saints at Ephesus, uh, we got before we get into anything else, let's get real practical here and let me just tell you some, what it means for you to be Christians. He does not begin that way. Paul, Paul is happy to be, by our standards, completely un- impractical. But, I, but, but that would be a huge mistake to think that he's being impractical. But by our standards, he is. right. He doesn't start with a list of how-tos or what to be. He starts with a list of what is true. He starts with getting our eyes off of ourselves. He starts with getting our eyes off of our problems. He gets, he starts with saying, praise it be God. That's how we must begin. 
That's how we must begin our week. And hence here on the first day of the week, we find ourselves in the house of the Lord so that we can be recalibrated, so that we can have our eyes set right. Because by nature, our eyes tend to drift. Our eyes come down off of God. And, and they get distracted by the problems of our age. And Paul is snapping us back going, hey, look here. <laughs> look there. Praise it be God. And then, again, letting the whole thing just be an expression of praise. So first, I think we must notice the fact that this little text begins with praise or blessing. And then, again, we, without it being an exhortation, let us turn it around and say, does that characterize our lives? Are we people of praise? Are we people whose eyes are lifted out of our circumstances so that we're walking around? So we could be, we could be accused of being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. You know, we used to say, don't be so heavenly minded, you know, no, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to be so heavenly minded that people accuse you of being, your, your head, your head is, is lost in the clouds, if you will. That's fine. That's a good accusation. Let it be true of you. Because what you will find is if that's true of you, you will turn out to be the most earthly good. You will be the most earthly good. Where you turn out to be no earthly good is when you're earthly minded. Right? When the problems of our age become the ultimate problems. I will, I, I promise you, you will be no earthly good. But let us be heavenly minded. You know, Paul says to the Colossians, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. And if we do that, if we set our hearts and minds there, what we'll find is that instinctively we start loving our neighbors, right? Because we see God in them. You know, we want, we want to be faithful and we will be if we set our eyes on him. So first, the beginning and end of praise. The second observation I want to make on this is that this text, and, and we're, again, I'm not reading all uh, the verses 3 through 14, but this text is dominated by Trinitarian theology. This is a Trinitarian passage, and it is Trinitarian in that Pauline way. That is to say, this is not a lecture on the Trinity. This is not a, this is not a chapter of Trinitarian theology overtly. But it is Trinitarian theology through and through, and it's the way Paul thinks of the Trinity. That is, the Trinity is not usually things you look at, like glasses. It's things you look through. For Paul, the Trinity is the reality through which he understands the world. It's, it's, it's the background music almost. Now, he does draw attention to it here to some degree, but it's just woven into the text. The text we're looking at today is really Paul's praise of the triune God by contemplating the Father, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who did these things. Next week's passage will be the Son. And then the final passage in verses 12, 13, 14 will be the Spirit. So this, this, this long run-on sentence is actually structured in three sections, right? It's, it's weird to think of having three paragraphs in a sentence, but that's what happened when you get a long sentence. <laughs> when you get a long run on a sentence, you got three paragraphs in one sentence. And, and Paul's got a three paragraph sentence because he's got, he's got the Father, and then he's going to talk about the Son, and then he's going to talk about the Spirit. But we don't have to wait to the end of this long sentence to, to get the Trinitarian vision because it, it, Paul, in some sense, gives it all to us right in the beginning. In verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, 
has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And what we get there is the whole Trinity. Paul is praising the Father for what he has given us in the Son. And what he's given us in the Son is the Spirit. When Paul says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing, he's not thinking spiritual blessing, i.e. not physical, not earthly, kind of vaporous blessings, uh, uh, intellectual, blessings that you can contemplate, but they're not real. That's not what he means. Spiritual blessings for Paul means blessings in the Spirit, blessings by the Spirit. Paul is celebrating the work of the Father, and here you see the whole pattern of Paul and the pattern of this text, but the pattern of all his letters, that the, the Father blesses us through the Son in the Spirit. Right? The Father blesses us through the Son. How does the blessing of the Father get to us? Through the work of the Son. How do you know the love of God? Through the Son. How do you have the revelation of God? Through the Son. That's how you know God. That's how you experience the love of God. That's how you experience the forgiveness of God. That's how you experience reconciliation with God. It is the the gift of God the Father that comes to us through the means of the Son. But how does the work of the Son get to us? In the power of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that is sent into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It is the Holy Spirit, we're gonna, we'll see in Ephesians 2, who, while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ so that we can be reconciled to the Father. And we need to, we need to have, we need to let Paul's words here shape us and give us again the lenses. Now, it's not wrong to have a lecture on the Trinity. It would not be wrong to kind of say, okay, we've done it on table talks. We've thought through how do we understand the Trinity. That, that'd be absolutely appropriate, right? Just like it's okay to look at your glasses and clean them up. But that's, that's not generally how you use them. You use them by looking through them. And what we need to let Paul do here is help us to think in a Trinitarian way, right? It's in the Spirit, through Christ, that we come and worship the Father. That's what we're doing here this morning. You are brought here this morning in the Spirit so that through the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we might sing praises to the Father. So it's from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, that by the Spirit, through the Son, we return to the Father. That's, that is the, that's how Christians think. That's how Trinitarian Christians think. We don't just think about God. We think about Father, Son. And Holy Spirit. That's how Paul thinks. When he thinks about God, it's God the Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual, with every blessing of the Spirit, if you will. And so, right from the outset, we can, we can, we're talking about breathing high theology, high mountain air. Well, it starts with the Trinity. <laughs> it starts with the Trinity. So he gets deep really fast or high on the mountaintop very fast. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, let me just pause here as well. And before we get into the particular blessing that he's going to mention, namely our election and our predestination, but I think it is worth contemplating, again, right at the outset, Paul praises God for blessing us with every spiritual blessing. Every blessing of the Spirit 
not will be yours. Notice the tense here, right? He has done it. Okay, so it's a past perfect tense, okay? But he has done it. It's already been accomplished. What has been accomplished? That every blessing of the Spirit has been given to you. There is nothing that you are lacking. It's all yours. Right? It's all yours. And this is how Paul begins the letter. That'll work itself out toward the end of the book. He's going to think, okay, what's this mean for us? How do we handle our gifts? How do we handle relationships with one another? How do we handle this? How do we handle that? But it begins with understanding that in Christ, by the will of the Father, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. If you and I actually believe that, we would live unbelievably courageous lives. We would live fearless lives because we would know we lack nothing. It's like Paul says to the Corinthians, all things are yours. Paul is yours and Peter is yours. The world is yours. Life is yours. Death is yours. Everything is yours in Christ. You have been blessed indeed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, it's important for you to recognize that these blessings are yours in Christ. Now, here's a phrase that when we contemplate this run-on, beautiful three-paragraph sentence, um, this is a phrase you need to know because I think it's maybe it's 12 times you can do the count. Don't do it now. Don't do it now. Yeah, yeah, let's see if he's right. But whatever, whatever. Okay, give me. It's maybe 12 times, 11 times where we get this phrase, in him, in Christ. And this phrase is so important for us as Christians. It's not just that God has blessed us with every blessing. It's that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, blessing of the Spirit in Christ. These blessings of God are conditional. Right? They are in Christ. They are not found outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no access to the blessings of God. And this letter is written to the saints of God in Ephesus. It's written to the ones who, in fact, are in Christ. But it's very important for us to remember, it's not just that God has blessed us, he's blessed us in Christ. And that language of being in him is, we'll hear Paul talk all through Ephesians about this. But in all of his letters, you are baptized into Christ. We are clothed in Christ, right? Everything is in Christ because in Christ is the only source and seat of the blessings of God. And we must never forget that. And we must never begin to look at God the Father, again, around Jesus or apart from Jesus. It's always in Christ that the blessings of God flow to us. And that's got to, that keeps us humble. We, we, we have no access to these in and of ourselves. You are not holy and righteous. You need Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that he has given him to you. Okay, so we've been blessed with this triune blessing in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the particular blessing that Paul gets into? We're going to see primarily the, the, the gift and work of the Father in our redemption is the gift of our election. The gift of the Son is the gift of our redemption. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift of our, our pledge, our inheritance, a down payment of, of, of assurance that is given to us. So election and redemption and assurance are the gifts that we primarily are going to see as he kind of now breaks down each of these, uh, each of the persons of the Trinity. That is to say, our salvation is a triune work, but within the Trinity, each member of the Trinity uh, 
does a specific thing. The Son does not choose you in that sense. Uh, and the Spirit does not choose you. The Father has chosen us in Christ by the Spirit. And so here in verse 4, how what, what spiritual blessing do we have from the Father? Just as He chose us in Him, that is, in the Son. So here already this phrase is popping up very early. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. So the gift of the Father to us is our election in Christ. Now, we again, we've spent time on this in um, our table talk, and you're, we're, we're touching on a, uh, a, a powder keg of, of, <laughs> of theology, right? when we start talking about predestination and what that means. But at least we can say, uh, and we, we know that there are different theological traditions that consider what it means to be predestined or what it means to be chosen of God. But one thing Paul is saying is he's telling the Ephesians, if we just boil down to simply what he's saying, what he's saying to the Ephesians is, hey, you are what you are because of the electing grace of God. That you are what you are as saints of God, not because somehow you have found your way to him, but you are what you are as people of God, as saints within the church, because God has come to you. God is the initiator of this relationship. Think about the, the passage in Deuteronomy, our Old Testament passage today. Here, Israel's about to enter the promised land. Now, they lost their way. Deuteronomy, it's second generation. The first generation had lost their way. They're all dying in the, in the wilderness, but now they're preparing to enter into the promised land. And the Lord reminds them, hey, you are a holy people, a people that I have chosen for myself. I have set you apart to my, for my purposes. And I have chosen you not because you are better than the other nations. I did not set my love upon you because you were more than in number or that you're better craftsmen or that you're more intellectual. No, you were the least of all the nations. It would be a fair question to say, why us? That's the appropriate question, Israel. Why us? The Egyptians seem so much better than us. Yeah, okay, good. That's a great, that's the appropriate posture that you should have. You were the least of all the nations. And brothers and sisters, it's important. You know, Israel, you got, you think about all the story of Israel, right? Abraham's in a land of idolaters, and the Lord approaches him and says, Hey, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. You know, Jacob is fighting with his brother. And he says, Hey, I'm going to make you the heir of the kingdom. Moses is wandering in the desert, feeling like a complete failure, complete loser. He's been chased out of Israel by his own, out of uh, Egypt, excuse me, by his own people. He's out in, in, in alone in the desert, you know, shepherding sheep. And all of a sudden the Lord comes to him and says, hey, come here. You're my guy. You're my guy. The story of Israel again and again and again demonstrates the fact that God approaches his people, that God chooses his people for his holy purposes, purposes that many times are beyond our understanding, but according to his purposes. And at least what we can take from this passage in considering the doctrine of our election is that you are what you are as the people of God because God sought you out. And the appropriate question would be, why me? If that is the posture of your faith, great, you're tracking. 
If your question is, well, why not that person? I don't know. I don't know that's not that person. But that's the, the posture we ought to have is, why me? What do you mean you chose me? Who would choose me? If that's our posture, I think we're in the appropriate place. In the Ephesians, Paul says he chose us, again, in him. Do you know when you were chosen? When God sent his son to be the redeemer of the world. You were chosen when he chose his son. And from that point forward, anytime the Lord thinks of Bill Spanger, he thinks of his son. When he sees Bill Spanger, he sees him in his son because I was chosen in him. To what end? He tells us. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So again, I think Paul throws that in there so that we do not think that somehow I, I proved myself a worthy candidate, right? No, this, this occurred before the foundation of the world. God determined to set his love upon the Ephesians and he determined to set his love upon us that we should be holy and without blame. I think that's important here for us to know that our election, the fact that we were chosen by God to be his people was not just so that we could go to heaven. But actually you were chosen to be something. You were chosen in Christ that you might be holy and without blame. Paul says it this way to the Romans in Romans 8. We thought about this passage in the table talk, right? All things work together for good to those who love him and called according to his purposes. For all those he foreknew, he also predestined that they might be conformed to the image of his son. Your election was not just so you could be elect. Your election was not just so that you wouldn't go to hell when you die. Your election was that you might be his true image bearers. Your election was for the purpose that you might be holy, that you might be without blame, that you might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the blessing that is at work in and through you by the electing power of God. You were elected, if you will, for that purpose. And then he continues in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. So here Paul gives us the motivating factor behind our election. I don't, I don't know why God chose Israel. I don't know why he chose you or me, except that he says it was done in love. For God so loved the world. In love, he predestined us. Here's what we can say, though, though predestination is a truth that is wrapped in mystery, and that's okay. It was wrapped in mystery for St. Augustine. It was wrapped in mystery for John Calvin. Lord knows it's going to be wrapped in mystery for Bill Spanger, okay? It's, it's, it's a truth that we must affirm and hold, but it is wrapped in mystery. But here's what we can say. We can at least say what the Apostle says about it. And what we can say is that down underneath it, well, I don't understand how God does what he does, nor do I have to. Down underneath it all, I can say this, at the base of it is love. All those he foreknew in Romans 8, but foreknow there doesn't mean intellectually. It means love. All those he foreloved. That's what it means for to be known by God. right? When he says, depart from me, I never knew you, it doesn't mean, I, who, I don't know who, you know, that's a, of course, he's an omniscient God. 
But the knowledge of God in this case is the familiar love of God. All those he loved, he predestined. In love, he predestined us here. So that we can say. And therefore, for Paul, predestination is not a threatening thing. It's not a thing that makes us wring our hands. Well, what if I'm not predestined? What if I'm not elected? It just doesn't have that. You, you just don't ever see that in Paul, ever. For Paul, the doctrine of election is the doctrine of the love of God. That God did not wait in heaven for us to come to him. God did not say, all right, you made a mess of your life, but when you clean yourself up and come to me, then I'll, I'll accept you. For Paul, the doctrine of predestination is, I loved you before you loved me. I set my love upon you before you even knew me. I was at work for you. That's how Paul sees it. And therefore, for Paul, it is a source of blessing and praise from the moment of the, that he, get, he gets going. It's just He's just enraptured in praise because God loved me. He loved me before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, he had already viewed me in and through the work of his son because he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Again, to what end? Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. We talked about this several weeks in a row, that you ladies are as well sons of God in that biblical sense, because son in this case is not a gender thing. Son here is a title. Yes, it means child of God, but he doesn't say sons and daughters because son is the heir, right? So you girls are, you women are the, are the sons of God and you men, you are the bride of Christ, right? We, we, we inherit all of it. It's not a gender thing. It's a title. And he set his love upon you from before the foundation of the world that you who are not by nature children of God might be adopted and become thus heirs of God. That you might be heirs of Almighty God, or as Paul says in Romans 8, co-heirs with Christ. This is, this is what your destination is. This is what your end is that he has predetermined. He has predestined you to the adoption as sons in Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. And that phrase, again, each of these is a sermon unto itself because that phrase, according to the good pleasure of his will, tells you what was the motivating factor behind it. Paul is not, God is not driven by external forces. This love was purely, it came from the good pleasure of his will. He is a God of grace and a God of love. And so what comes flowing out of him is grace and love. And it is purely according to the purpose of his will that he has set this amazing gift sovereignly upon you from before the foundation of the world, before you did anything good or bad. By his own will, he has done this. And then in verse 6, again, as we've already said, Paul cinches even this paragraph on the Father. He cinches it together with praise to the end, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us, as we've already confessed in this, in this service today, who are sinners, by nature enemies of God. But Paul is enraptured in praise because by his predestining love, he has even made us, to the praise of his glory and grace, he's made us accepted in the beloved, in Christ. Again, you and I have no access to the blessing of God. You and I have no access to God himself. 
Yet because of the sovereign predestining work of the Father, He has made you and I accepted in the Beloved. And we know how. We'll get to that next, next week. But He's going to tell us about how in Christ that we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's, that's the only way you and I can be accepted. And yes, that's been given to you by the Father, by His electing love, he has chosen to send His Son so that you through Him might be accepted in the Beloved. And then by the Son sent the Spirit that we might have the assurance of our salvation. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you to breathe deeply. The high mountain air of Trinitarian theology, the high mountain air of our election, our predestining, the predestining work of the Father by which He has chosen you of all people to be his, his own son, and as such co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that stir us then to be holy and blameless. I believe if you're going to be holy and blameless, the best way to do it is not by focusing on all your good deeds. The way to be holy and blameless is to focus upon the glory of God. Again, you want to be an earthly good? Be heavenly minded. Be so heavenly minded that you will truly be an earthly good. Be so heavenly minded that indeed you will find yourself being holy and blameless. But seek in your own, you know, hand-wringing power to be holy and blameless. And you will find yourself in a ditch and a rut of pharisaical self-righteousness that ends up being satisfied with things that aren't truly righteous. But set your eyes on Christ and you will be glorifying to the Father. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, we give you praise we give you, we, we bestow as, as little as we can, as the hymn writer says, we lisp forth your praise. But as we are able with the lips and hearts and minds and mouths that you've given to us, we bestow blessing upon you and praise to you. For you are the God who has loved us from before the foundation of the world, who has chosen us in Christ in love, having predestined us that we might be holy and without blame, that we might be adopted as sons of Almighty God, that we might be accepted in the Beloved. All of this to the praise of your glory and grace. And so we thank you that you have filled our lips with praise. And Father, we pray that you would keep our eyes fixed upon you, our triune God, that being so heavenly minded, we might indeed, by your grace, be earthly good to our neighbors and even to ourselves. We might be holy and without blame for your glory. So Father, work that in us and through us, we pray. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.